Hi, I'm Chase from Seattle. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. I'm Lex Howard from Wenatchee, Washington. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Longtime listeners will know that I record Bullseye at my house here in Los Angeles. And when I talked to the actor Jeffrey Tambor a couple of years ago, he had a story that I could really relate to. I'm reading this uh, uh, wonderful uh, book written by Susan Cheever about her dad, John Cheever, who was arguably one of the great writers of our generation. And uh, when they were living on the east side and he had nowhere to go, uh, he would dress up every day in his suit and put on his tie. And he would go down in the elevator with everybody as they were going to work. But he would go down to the little office that was right off the supers thing in the basement and he would write. And at the end of the day, he'd put his jacket on, get in the elevator, and go back up to his apartment. There's something to be said when you, like me, work in your house mm. for having doing something that signals that business is starting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I start my business day by taking a hammer and slamming it on sure. my, my fingers. Well, it gets you pumped. Well, it starts. It can only get better. It's bullseye. This week, Jeffrey Tambor talks about his portrayal of my favorite television character of all time, Hank Kingsley on The Larry Sanders Show. Doug Jones reflects on his many, many acting roles in huge Hollywood movies, from Pan's Labyrinth to Hellboy to The Silver Surfer. And he explains why you probably never recognize him on the street. And God returns to the program. Yes, the Lord himself to tell us what he really thought about Noah. Stick around for all that and more on Bullseye. Let's go. So every week here on Bullseye, we check in with one of our favorite culture critics to get some recommendations for stuff that you shouldn't miss. This week, we're joined by Andrew Nas from the hip-hop blog Cocaine Blunts. Uh, He's joining us from his home in Oakland, California. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? How's it going, Jesse? Let's start with Nicki Minaj and this song called uh, Stupid I guess we have probably had to bleep that on the radio. It's really been a while since a lady rapper has come out who has made pop music, uh, but also has been as good at rapping as Nicki Minaj is. Yeah, definitely. And she's also a weirdo. (laughs) This is a really weird song. Yeah, it's bizarre. It kind of has a hook, but it doesn't. And like the beat is super stripped down and spastic. It's a bugged out record and it's the lead single from like a major pop album. Um, I, I saw this video the other day of uh, her rapping maybe uh, five years ago. Um, 
just like rapping as though she was uh, uh, like Foxy Brown or something like that, wearing a baseball cap and kind of standard New York street corner clothes and rapping about the lady equivalent of standard New York street corner stuff. And it really threw me for a loop given the context of her rapping in crazy voices about being a Barbie doll and stuff. Well, I think that was kind of essential to her rise. I think if she had come out like fully formed as this weird Barbie plastic thing, I think people would kind of give her like a sideways glare. Your next pick is Gucci Mane and Waka Flocka Flames Walking Leg. So Waka Flocka Flames' mother um, was also Gucci Mane's manager for a while and they have worked very closely together for quite a long time and have been distanced and come back together and it seems like the sound of this record is the sound that made them both stars it is a sort of combination of something that makes you want to have fun and something that makes you want to like uh, get in a pushing match yeah and I mean that's kind of Especially Flocka, that's kind of his whole thing. How do you feel when you listen to this record? I want to punch a wall. I mean, it's <laughs> it's like, but that's and it's beautiful. Like I love Flocka, man. Like that's that to me is a huge part of hip hop. It's about a release as much as it is about absorbing something, you know. Like, and I, I think Flocka gets a bad rep particularly because he doesn't articulate much with his music like it's more about raw emotion but man that's perfectly fine that's great let's take a listen to Waka Flocka's first Andrew Nas, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Bullseye. Thanks for having me, Jason. You can find Andrew Nas online at cocaineblunts.com. You can also find his cover story on the latest issue of the magazine, The Fader. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the veteran character actor Jeffrey Tambor. His career on screen didn't start until he was already in his mid-30s. It kicked off with a guest appearance on the TV show Kojak. Then in the early 90s, he portrayed his first of two just absolutely iconic television characters. The first was maybe my favorite of all time, Hank Kingsley on The Larry Sanders Show. The second was George Bluth Sr. on the Fox sitcom Arrested Development. That show focused on the Bluth family with George Sr. as the confident and also incompetent patriarch. For much of the show, George Sr. is in prison for some shady accounting practices. Here he is talking to his son, played by Jason Bateman, who wants control of the family company. You know, I parked in the same spot for the last five years. I was there on time every single day. I was so loyal. I worked so hard. Why didn't you just put me in charge? Michael, listen to me. These guys, the SEC, they've been after me for years. I put you in charge. You're going to be wearing one of these orange jumpsuits, too. could have helped you. You'd be an accomplice. No. Had to be your mom. They cannot arrest a husband and wife for the same crime. 
Yeah, I don't think that that's true, Dad. Really? I got the worst attorneys. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you as, uh, for dressing up. Oh, well. But I'm happy to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. You're a native San Franciscan. Mm-hmm. That's one of the many reasons I'm excited to have you on the program. Because you are from? I'm a native San Franciscan myself. Really? Where, where in San Francisco did you grow up? I grew up on the avenues. Uh, I think it was uh, Noriega, something like 14th and Noriega or Ortega, one of those. You know, they're all in alphabetical. Uh, and then we moved around. But my formative years, we, we lived in a, a place right opposite San Francisco State College. And uh, there was a theater there. And uh, I used to go over and um, watch them rehearse, these 90-year-old men. In in retrospect, uh, they were 16- and 17-year-old freshmen, but they did the scene study class. And I think that's when I I got hooked. How how old were you? Eight. What do you know at eight? I knew it was exciting. I, I didn't like what they were doing so much as when they would stop and they would talk about it and they would take it apart. And put it back together. And I went, my, what is, what alchemy is this? And for some reason. You probably use the word alchemy, too. I use the word alchemy in a conversation as much as I can. And starting at age seven. You had learned alchemy at seven. Well, my middle name is alchemy. And that's, oh, I'm just sure. a tambor. <laughs> so, uh, but it was interesting. It was, it, was, it was good. These guys, and they asked me what I thought. I, mean, I was eight years old. And I said, well, what kind of people ask you what you think? You lived your teenage years in a San Francisco that was sort of in between the beat San Francisco that people imagine and the sort of flowers in their hair. Exactly in between. I actually hit the latter part of the beat. I mean, I remember going down to City Lights and going for a coffee and they were still snapping their fingers and, you know, bongos and reading beat poetry. I lived that. Um, I missed actually the entire drug revolution. I missed it entirely. The whole thing? The, the, the whole the whole schmear, as they say in, in New York. Yeah. And San Francisco was, a, as you know, that then was a magical city. It, it was, um, I didn't know any other city would be like that. I, you could go downtown. Uh, you could go to North Beach. You could have a, a spaghetti dinner for a dollar and then go to Los Flamencos de los Bodegas. And uh, it was, and I thought it was like Paris. Uh, uh, it was, I thought. Uh, I thought all cities were like that. They're not. Your first TV credit, Kojak, you were (laughs) well into your 30s at that point. I was 35. What were you doing between college and hitting the screen? Well, I'd like to go back to that Kojak experience because uh, I had five lines. I played a coroner, and it was my first experience on film. And uh, we had to stand out at Grant's tomb, and the camera froze. It was the coldest day on record in New, in New York City. Uh-huh. And uh, I had these lines. And uh, the camera malfunctioned, and I had to stay out there. I didn't have a, a second or a stand-in. And they fixed it, and we stood there for about 20 minutes, and they called all the all actors, all the other actors out of their warm dressing rooms. And when they said action, my mouth had completely frozen. <laughs> It, it, I was like a talking anus. I was. <laughs> and they said, cut, print. And that, if you look at that, you can see. You can see these bulging <laughs> eyes of a man saying, inside, something is terribly wrong. And my mouth not working and going. <laughs> and they said, cut, print, thank you. And they gave me a, a place to go down 
town and loop my lines. I, uh, the audience, uh, that means you redo them. And uh, that was my first film experience. You quickly sort of made your name with Three's Company and The Ropers. Yeah. And it sort of established this uh, pattern in your career of going back and forth between very sincere authority figures, doctors and judges and lawyers and that kind of thing and sort of uh, buffoonish comic people with <laughs> uh, who, who have high status maybe inside their own minds, but maybe not quite as much outside of that. Um, had you done a lot of comic acting before you started working on all these sitcoms? Yeah, I mean, I mean, mostly did that. I have always had sort of a humorous bent. Uh, I think I had it. I, I had it as sort of a defense mechanism when I was growing up, and then I, had, I it turned into a sense of humor. It's weird, but I, I often wonder about that. I mean, the same year that I did Injustice for All, I did The Ropers, and I kind of went, "What's going on here? What is that? What is the Jekyll and Hyde of that?" In Yiddish, we say "vaft." It means going back and forth. But uh, I thought that was a bad thing at first, and I thought there was something terribly wrong with me and I, my career planning or something like that. And then I realized that's the two aspects of of Jeffrey. What, what's the difference in the tone between the straight characters that you play and the comic characters that you play? Because they don't feel that far apart from each other. Well, I think me. you answered your, your own question. I think there is no... I play it... I mean, for instance, Hank Kingsley in, in uh, the Larry Sanders show, I thought was a very serious character. And I, I approached him very seriously. And people would say, you know, he's a, an ass, a buffoon. I never thought... Never thought that. It, it, it actually sort of hurt my feelings. And I went, what is the perception here? Because I thought... I, I thought different of him. Uh... But um, I think that's the only way to play it is down and dirty, you know. In ballet, there's sort of a, a you know, before you leap, you have to have a plie. And if the actor has to ground all that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here's a clip of my guest, Jeffrey Tambor, playing Hank Kingsley on The Larry Sanders Show. Uh, the show starred Gary Shandling and followed many of the characters behind the scenes of a late night talk show. Shandling played the titular Larry Sanders, who was the host of the show. Hank Kingsley, played by Tambor, was Sanders' sidekick. You know, Hank, I was just uh, wondering why you say that hey now thing. What do you mean? Well, it's just something that you used on the show, and now you're starting to use it in your personal life, and, and, and it's an affectation of some sort, isn't it? Did you ever say hey now as a, as a kid? No, I don't. I probably didn't. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I, uh, I said uh, hey. Yeah. And I said, uh, now, I mean, right, right, at sure, different sure. times, I but uh, I, no, I never put them together till later in life. Uh -huh. So, in that sense, it's, it's, uh, it's part of my personality. You know, Hank, this isn't easy for me, but uh, would you mind not doing it on the show anymore? Because, uh, frankly, I'll wait, tell you the wait truth. A Are you telling me that when you yeah. do your... Uh, you do you do this? That yeah. isn't the, the same affectation? That isn't the same as my, hey now! There, you just said it again. And, you know, I asked you not to say it. <laughs> I can't say it off stage either? It doesn't even exist. Use hey now in a sentence, Hank. Uh, hey now, that was real funny. You know what, Hank? It's not even in the dictionary, hey now. Okay, okay, this is, this is how I use hey now in, in a sentence, okay? You say... And, of course, my sidekick, Hank. And, of course, my sidekick, Hank. Hey, now! Hank, that's a sentence. How did it come to you? Let me start there. I was 
testing for something, I believe it was at NBC, and this gentleman that I was uh, uh, reading for uh, said, you know, this is not a really right for you. You're, you're wonderful. He said something nice. But he said, my friend is Gary Shandling, and he's doing this uh, show, and uh, I, would you mind if I called? I said, no. So the next day, he called him, and the next day, the script for, um, my mother called it the Hank Kingsley show, <laughs> the <laughs> Hank Kingsley show uh, came, and I saw it, and I, I you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's four or five times in your life where you go, I, I, I know who this is. And I, I knew him immediately. I, whether I could play him uh, was not the point, but I, I, I recognized it, and I loved him immediately. And the first episode was called um, Hey Now, where he actually explained why he said Hey Now. So I went in. I'll never forget. I left my house about two hours before, and I, I, I drove around, drove around, and I, I read with... Gary, Francine Maisler was the casting director, and I just let it fly. I, I, I just let it fly. Hank was very real to me. So I think Hank came to me. We were both 40 years old, and we both uh, came to each other's life at the same time. I actually believed in, I believed in him. There are four or five times, ten maybe, at, at, in a career where you go, I know this. Hank Kingsley was a character for folks who ha haven't seen the show or, or re don't remember the show particularly well, who played um, Gary Shandling as, as Larry Sanders' sidekick on the program. And he was, um, he, he was a character who, who was, you know, I, I was tempted to say dim, but, but not quite dim, more just kind of uh, uh, a little bit desperate and very driven by emotion and uh, uh, and and kind of a uh, a little bit of fear, and he was a little bit sad, um, but also immensely lovable. Like literally, I mean, I I say this not because you're across from me, but like my most beloved television character of all time. Really? Yeah, absolutely. God's own truth. Um, you said that you felt like you knew him, or or you got him right away. What was it about him that you felt like you knew right away? Uh, how sensitive he was. He's overly sensitive. Uh, how ambitious he was, how his ambitions far outstripped his <laughs> skills. <laughs> yes. Uh, which he didn't know. And I think that was one and how just childish he was. I mean that he was a child. Uh, and I, I, I have those things. I, I'm, I'm so sensitive. It's ridiculous. I've, I've had to battle that my whole life. Uh, and so this was a, an opportunity, which is wonderful for an actor. You get to use the very thing that has been plaguing you the most. And I, I put it in him. And I, I did think he was sad. Well, thank you for the kind words uh, you said on the air tonight. The sentiment really touched me. I'm glad I could help out. Are you? You, you had had, you know, a, about as successful period of, of 10 years of acting as you could have as a character actor, working really consistently mm -hmm. uh, over the course of 10 years before you got that part. But did you ever... One of the things about acting is that you're you're always asking someone for a job. Um, it's did, so interesting that you're talking about that. Did you ever feel like did you ever feel like you could relate to Hank's sort of his sort of fear of being left on the outside? Oh my God! 
Oh my, sure, absolutely. That's one of man's. Uh, I think man's biggest fears is that he will be rejected and and that he will be, have no value. Uh, hence, the comedy begins. We do great things to be loved, don't we? Uh, um, uh, and uh, he would do anything to be loved. Um, convert to Judaism. Convert to Judaism. <laughs> and, and also possibly because he might get he might get to host the Chabad telephone. The Chabad telephone <laughs> and and try to hook hook up with the rabbi. That the, he proposes to the female rabbi. But what's interesting about him is that the first time he gets a, a hate letter. We remember the beginning was dear, dear. I think dear Jew, Jewhead. <laughs> that on that on that salute in the letter, he took his the the yarmulke came right off. So. He's out of here. <laughs> Sorry, Jew. It's not worth it's not worth enduring a nonsense insult. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> Beverly is a Christian. Paul is an atheist, but we all join hands to put this show together every night. And I don't want you to. What religion is Larry? Larry's a talk show host. Shalom, baby. I was just laughing before uh, before you came over with my editor on the phone about Hank singing "Spinning Wheel" with his band, oh and 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 then blaming all the horribleness of his own lack Absolutely. of singing talent on the band. That would be that would be Hank. Yeah. See. Tommy, I think, see, right there, you know, I think this, we need to punch it, you know, when I go, ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel, blah, you know, just you know, punch it with the horns or something. You know, I think I'm just going to sing the bois. I mean, you know, make it like a joke. That's funny, huh? What goes up must come down. Spinning wheel got to go round. We'll have more with Jeffrey Tambor after a break. Plus, find out what God really thought about Noah. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Jeffrey Tambor. Among his many, many roles, he portrayed the patriarch of the Bluth family on the beloved sitcom Arrested Development. The wedding is in one month. Oh. A month? Now look, just because a woman gets pregnant doesn't mean you have to marry her. Too many lives have been ruined because some cheap waitress at a Hojo said she used an IUD. It was Stuckies. But I believed you. When you started to do Arrested Development, you didn't expect to be a regular character on the show, right? No, I was guest starring. Did you know uh, Mitch? I know that you, you worked a lot on the Golden Girls. Did you know him from the Golden Girls before I didn't that? know Mitch on the Golden Girls, but I had done a series with Mitch called Everything's Relative, 
which in a way is an ancestor to Arrested. Uh, so we knew each other. We also live, we, uh, lived in the same uh, area, uh, Pacific Palisades. So I would be sitting in the coffee shop, and I would see him going through, and he'd be working on things. And we, we love each other. We're, we're like brothers. So I was doing Hellboy 2, uh, Hellboy 1. And I had just landed, coming back for about a month break before I went back to shoot in Prague. And I, uh, Mitch, on the phone, call me. I called him. He said, hey, how'd you like to come? Hey, pal. How'd you like to come down and, uh, you know, do George Sr. In, in a couple of days? And I said, sure. And so I did. And we had fun and a great, great time. And uh, later, um, when it went to series, they asked me to join. Was it a tough decision? Oh, no. It was one of the great... I've had two experiences like that where I knew it would, I, that this is... Well, they were the two experiences. Right. I mean, they, I knew. I said, this is important. And I'll tell you when I knew. Uh, it wasn't so much working on the set, which was glorious, and working with the great Jason Bateman. It was when I saw the pilot itself formed, and I saw what Mitch had constructed. And I went, oh, this is... This is really good, whatever this is. This might be too good. And then I saw Jason's performance at the center of it. And I thought that was the smartest piece of casting and the smartest piece of acting because I said, oh, look what every man is at the center and we are relatable. And so now we can go as far out around him, the satellites. Now listen, we can't just go in there and plead not guilty. We have to have someone big behind us, our own private Matlock. So I made some calls and I got him. Got who? Andy Griffith. Yeah, you never saw Matlock? Not a real attorney, Dad. Now for 10 grand, he'll actually sit behind us in court and read the paper. For 15, he'll actually sit at the defense table. For $20,000, he'll twice lean forward and whisper something in your ear. White suit, that's extra. Well, that's an awful lot of money for the stupidest idea I've ever heard. The juries love him. That's just it, Dad. There won't be a jury because we are pleading guilty. I am not guilt. Oh, I didn't want to tell you this. Are you ready for the bombshell? Andy Griffith was in the bombshell? I'm a patsy. I was set up by the Brits. A group of British builders operating outside the OC contacted me for a partnership to build homes overseas. I did not know they meant Iraq. We've got a picture of you with Saddam Hussein. I I thought that was the guy who played the soup Nazi. Come on. I told him how much I liked his work. Arrested Development had uh, such a uniformly spectacular cast. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, were there moments when uh, other actors and scenes, and you worked a lot with Jason Bateman, especially in the beginning, but, yeah. but later on in the series, especially when you were playing uh, George's semi-evil twin brother, um, you, uh, or at least uh, highly stoned twin brother. There you go. Um, uh, you you played a lot with the cast. Were, were there moments that you remember that someone else made a choice that, that really... Uh, caught you off guard or you thought was particularly uh, either funny or surprising? That was sort of like the daily uh, daily regimen there. I mean, they, they, these were all home run hitters. So if you did a scene with David, you know, uh, you just, David was... D- is, David Cross. David Cross. Amazing. Is an amazing actor. There was Tony Hale, which I, whom I think created one of the great characters. Oh, it's spectacular. And, and I would always say, and I would always say to him, these are great. These are great actors. Will Arnett, 
uh, once I, I did a scene with Will Arnett that he put me away, and I don't laugh at anything. He just put me away, and they when they ta- they kept tasering him, and I couldn't stop laughing because of his reaction. Will Arnett is Will Arnett is one of the funniest people going. Jessica, great. I mean, right, Portia, great. I mean, so the, uh, Michael Sarah, uh, who uh, um, I remember uh, saying to Mitch, I said, this kid loves acting. He would get into a space at the, even at that young age, and I would say, he, he's. I, I never said he's going to go someplace because I don't talk that way, but uh, he was he was wonderful to watch. When did you decide that uh, you didn't just want to act; you also wanted to teach? Well, I've been teaching for 40 years. Uh, I taught at Wayne State University uh, in 1965. Uh, they brought me there to uh, teach and act in a repertory. And when I, I'd never taught anything. Um, and I, I remember thinking that was wonderful. I, I, I loved it. And this is not some altruistic give back. I just, I love doing it. And, I, and it seems to work. Did you have any um, uh, teachers or, or mentors since you became a, a working actor who, who were particularly important in shaping your career? Oh, absolutely. Well, my first... Or your, or your artistic life? My, my, my first teacher was actually in, uh, in junior high school. It was named Mr. Pravatoni. And I was doing it all wrong and having a lot of trouble with it. Uh, and I remember a, a, a lady, uh, a lady, she had to be, what, 10, uh, said, Mr. Pavatoni, Mr. Pavatoni, he's not doing it right. And I remember him yelling from the darkened auditorium, leave him alone, he knows what he's doing. And I think that's the first time anyone has ever said that to me, ever. And I remember the feeling of that. Uh, and then I had great teachers at San Francisco State College. I had great teachers at uh, Wayne State University. Uh, when I came here, I studied with the legendary Milton Katselis, uh for many years. Uh, and I actually taught there for him. Uh, and then I decided to leave uh, there and uh, go on my own and get, give my own. Uh, I've had good teachers. Acting is a unique form of art in that it's interpretive, typically anyway, you're um, bringing to life something that someone else has written or you're uh, performing for a director who has a particular vision. Um, It's almost always collaborative. Uh, How do you find your voice, um, your personal voice in a place where you're expressing, you know, themes set out by someone else? Well, there's an adage in in acting, you're, you're you're stuck with the character, but the character is also stuck with you. I mean, I think that's one of the, I mean, going back to, I think that's why I got the role of Hank Kingsley, because I was able to, in my character, my in my Jeffrey Tambor-ness, to bring something that no one else was bringing, or that attracted Gary, let's say. Um, uh, and I think uh, that that adage is, is true. And in that sense, you... Uh, Chekhov, Anton Chekhov, who was a third baseman for the Boston Red Sox, sure. uh, says, you know, there's a concept. I have a concept. I've written this. You have a concept, sometimes an opposing concept. And that which is created from that tension is art. I mean, as soon as you're cast, the, I know you don't like that word, alchemy, uh, starts again. and uh, I just don't like eight-year-olds saying it. It upsets me. It's just too sorry, precocious. Sorry, it was a word I learned <laughs> that day. It's hysterical. And so uh, I've always been interested in that, uh, in, in, in that magic, that uh, juju that goes on. 
Actor Jeffrey Tambor is known for his roles on The Larry Sanders Show and Arrested Development. He returns to the South by Southwest Festival this month to teach his very popular acting workshop. And his new comedy, Bent, premieres March 21st on NBC. Did you know that God actually wrote a memoir? I mean, it's one of those as-dictated-to type things. He had a ghostwriter, Emmy Award-winning comedy writer David Javerbaum. Anyway, these are God's real thoughts on Noah, as taken from his book, that's his with a capital H, The Last Testament, a memoir by God. Of all the people of his time, only Noah found grace in my eyes. For he was wise and upright and honest, and as it says in the text, he walked with God. Though in truth I wish that now and again he would have jogged with God, for he had a bit of a paunch. Noah was a great man. He had a lovely wife, nameless, and three terrific children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verily, their domestic interactions had a real My Three Sons feel to them, for they were always courteous and hokey, and unironically used words like jeepers. So I told Noah my plan, and how I meant to save him and his family by having him build an ark of the dimensions 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. Here I must enter a plea that mankind at least consider reinstating the cubit system, which remains the most marvelous method of measurement ever invented, putting the metric and imperial systems to shame. Four digits a palm, seven palms a cubit, six cubits a reed, two reeds a nindan, and ten nindans an aslu. I defy thee to devise units of greater common sense and utility, especially to anyone with even a passing interest in the irrigation of millet. And Noah did wondrous work constructing the ship, considering I bade him make it of gopher wood. That is the phrase used in Genesis, and scholars ever since have debated exactly what type of wood was so denoted. And the answer is, no type at all. For gopher wood was at that time a euphemism for lead-bolted plate steel. And now I come to one of the bigger revelations. I did not ask Noah to put two of every animal on board the ark. I know that is what it says in the Bible, but consider, a phylogenetically complete double bestiary contained within a 450,000 cubic cubit watercraft? Why, in but a medium-sized zoo, the animals themselves occupy nearly 450,000 cubic cubits, and that is to say nothing of the space required for their food and shelter, and their grazing and roaming areas, and of course a zoo contains but a tiny fraction of the total number of global species. I could go on and on. No, I did not say, put two of every animal on board the ship. What I said was, put two of any animal on board the ship. For I knew Noah and his family were in for a long, treacherous voyage, and that they would be confined indoors for over five months, and that under such circumstances it would be comforting for all aboard, particularly the kids, to bring with them two dogs, or two cats, or even two hamsters. I recommended dogs, but I left the choice to Noah for I have never been a cat god. As it happened, Noah did choose two dogs, cocker spaniel puppies he purchased the day before the rains came, Sparky and Pillow. But hundreds of years later, when I dictated the story to Moses upon Mount Sinai, he misheard me as saying, two of every animal. I corrected him immediately, but we both found the implication of the phrase amusing, 
and for the next hour or so, we made much mirth of the idea of a ship containing so many animals. For Moses would say, it sounds unbearable to me. And I would say, really? To me it sounds perfect. And he would say, you're a doggone liar, <laughs> so forth. And this brought us so much happiness that we kept it in, never thinking that any of thee could possibly take it seriously. A six-day creation, talking snakes, 969-year-old men, such things are clearly factual, fall well within the realm of the credible. But two of every animal on a single boat? No. All other animals, the beasts and the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the earth, all of them were zapped frozen and left floating in ice cubes until the whole thing was over. A section from The Last Testament, a memoir by God, with David Javerbaum. It's available now. David Javerbaum is a former writer and executive producer for The Daily Show, and he's also behind the Twitter account, at the Tweet of God. Our voice of God is comedian Seth Morris. He's on Twitter, at Seth is Morris. Stick around. We'll hear from Doug Jones, an actor you probably wouldn't recognize, even though you've probably seen him in a bunch of monstrous movies. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is proud to once again be a co-sponsor of the third annual Women in Comedy Festival. Over 200 of the best and brightest female comedians from around the country will perform in over 50 sketch, stand-up, and improv shows. The shows take place at venues all over Boston from March 21st to March 25th. For performers, show, and workshop information, visit womenincomedyfestival.com. Hello, fake radio listeners. I didn't see you over there. This is Judge John Hodgman relaxing in his chambers. You know, I've resolved the greatest moral conflicts of our time, like the potluck problem, snob versus slob, and of course, the toot dispute. Do you have a pressing issue that needs swift, decisive justice? Visit us at www.maximumfund.org slash J-J-H-O. That's J-J-H-O for Judge John Hodgman. And hear the results of each case on my weekly podcast, Judge John Hodgman. You can subscribe in iTunes or find it online at MaximumFun.org. This is the sound of a gavel. That is all. Bullseyes on Twitter. Follow us at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Doug Jones, has been the star of Hollywood blockbusters like Hellboy and The Silver Surfer, but you probably wouldn't recognize his face. He was trained as a mime in his unique physique. He's Six foot three and about 140 pounds. Is that right, Doug? Very good on the stats there. Yes, it's true. Excellent. Uh, makes him perfect to hide behind layers and layers of makeup and prosthetics. Combine that with his profoundly expressive body, and you've got a recipe for one of the most successful physical actors <laughs> in Hollywood. Uh, he also has a new book. It's called Mime Very Own Book. It features him in full mime regalia. I mean, traditional mime regalia, except for maybe the Converse All-Stars. Um, uh, <laughs> well, we had to make it modern day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, f photographed in a variety of pop culture parody poses. Mm -hmm. um, Doug Jones, welcome to Bullseye. Well, thank you for having me on Bullseye. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, 
were you always as tall and thin as you are today? Yes. I've always been the tallest in my class, skinniest in my class, uh, most mockable in my class. <laughs> yes. But here's the thing. I, I, I used to shake my fist at God and say, why would you create a freak of nature like this? Was this some kind of a joke? And uh, but I really do. Uh, I understand now as an adult that that he had a plan for me to be shaped the way goofy way that I am. Um, I've you know built this entire career on being the tall, skinny guy who moves well and and has a small head to put on prosthetics that don't make me look too bulky. You know that kind of thing. Uh, so the creature effects makeup industry uh, took to me better than I. I didn't know that was a job option. You know, and uh, lo and behold, it is. Did you have to work to be able to control your body, or were you always Mm. Were you always sort of like, um, you know, uh, Belushi, you know, you moved well for your size. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, uh, being a nervous type person who, who wanted, uh, you know, a class clown who wanted to be funny and blend and, and, uh, and entertain before people could laugh at me for other reasons. Um, I developed this very physical sense of humor and I can't talk without my hands. I'm always gesturing. I'm always throwing shapes out there as I speak. So, uh, so the physicality comes naturally. It does. And, and so finding the art of mime when I was in college at Ball State University in Indiana, uh, there was a mime troupe there called Mime Over Matter. Yeah, we're full of puns today, folks. Uh, and this mime troupe uh, is where I kind of you know, learned the, this art form of mime and communicating and telling stories without using props, without using set pieces, without using verbal dialogue. And it's all reliant upon your facial expression, your gesturing, your body language, your posturing, your physicality. So that, that's kind of where it's like, oh, this tall, skinny thing is starting to make sense now. When you decided to pursue this interest, which isn't, I mean, this is something that takes great dedication to do well. Sure. Some training, yeah. Um, did you consider the fact that it is so profoundly maligned? <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I guess, you know, in 30 years ago, it was less of a cultural cliche to hate mimes right, than true. it was right. 10 or 15 years after that. But, exactly. But it was still a growing cultural trend by then. <laughs> right, which I was unaware of. Um, I was tucked in, in this college in Indiana, in Muncie, Indiana, uh, in this little mime troupe and with this new art form to me. It was brand new. I, I had never seen mime before until I saw one of their shows. I was like, oh, my gosh, I love this. And uh, it was a stage production, right? So, um, so I became a part of that mime troupe and uh, didn't know. This was 1979 I entered that group and then uh, until 1982. Um, so I, I had no idea. But uh, here's what – when I, I did a summer at Kings Island, which is a theme park in, in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that three-month season at Kings Island, that's when I learned, oh, not everybody does love a mime because – I had to be on the street interacting with guests, which meant following them around, making fun of them, putting them into a box that didn't exist, acting like a robot, and can they push my button? All that kind of crap that made them get involved and nobody wanted to. So uh, that's when I, when I figured out that, like, okay, this is on the street. They didn't ask for this. That's why they hate me. Ah, yeah, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> so It must have been a wonderful feeling to be able to transform this thing that was born into you, which is this just profoundly distinctive physique, (laughs) uh, and be able to transform that into something that was 
you know, that was both funny and like delightful to people, but also could even be maybe beautiful. Isn't that weird? I never thought of myself as beautiful or that those words would enter, <laughs> would enter the picture in the same sentence with my name. But you know what? I think the, the movie career that, that, that has happened for me, that happened to me, I'm, I didn't even really pursue it. it uh, um, just somehow I kept getting a referral after referral that would pass me along to the next director, the next casting director, the next creature effects makeup artist that would then refer me again and again. And I ended up in the hands of Guillermo del Toro. And that's, he's the director that made the difference for me. That, that's where beauty became a part of the picture, I think. Because he writes characters for me that are, that are beautiful, that are leading men, that are, uh, that, that are a throwback to the Boris Karloff Lon Chaney days where monsters had respect and had leading roles and were considered movie stars. And that's, that's something I, I never expected my career to become. So I, I owe Guillermo del Toro quite a bit. It's Bullseye. My guest is Doug Jones. He's tall, skinny, and he's got a skinny face. That makes him perfect for Hollywood makeup magic. And it means that he's portrayed monsters and superheroes in movies like Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, and The Silver Surfer. He's also a trained mime. His new book is called Mime Very Own Book. You have given me nightmares, uh, both as an adult... Just sitting here? <laughs> both as an adult with, with your uh, roles in Pan's Labyrinth and as a child with what was the role that made your career, uh, which was Mac Tonight. Oh, my word, yes. This guy <laughs> that, for those who don't remember this long-running McDonald's yeah. commercial, I mean, we can hear a little bit of the song. This isn't you singing, no, uh, right. but it is. It, it will hopefully jog a few memories. When the clock strikes half past six, this was you in this uh in this like evening suit playing a piano wearing a giant moon head uh -huh. and doing a kind of crazy piano playing yes. dance between that and those blockheads from return to oz i don't think that i slept between <laughs> the ages of like four and nine. Oh, aren't you precious but you you, you look great now you do you're doing fine <laughs> thank you got rid of the bags under my <laughs> you eyes i'm saying you're getting some sleep i can tell yeah <laughs> Um, that was your first sort of professional experience with this talent that you didn't know you had, which was mm. that your body didn't just make you perfect for mime and for physical performance, but it also made you really suitable for mm -hmm. going into the makeup chair and being transformed into something, right. uh, with prosthetics. Crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 like I said, I did not know this was a career option. I'd seen monster movies as a kid, but I, I and it was not the genre that I that I lean toward. You know, uh, I like a good comedy. I like a I like a good rom com too. I'm not gonna lie, I do. I like chick flicks, uh, <clears throat> and so so I didn't really pursue. I want to wear layers of latex foam rubber, and I want to growl at people while I swipe blood from their forehead. I, I that wasn't a, a oh, I've got to do that. So, so uh, uh, the Mac Tonight campaign that we were just talking about, 
that sort of marked me as tall, skinny, goofy guy who moves well, wears a lot of stuff, and doesn't complain about it. And the not complaining part, I think, was what the creature effects makeup people liked. So that threw the referrals around, and before long, I'm, I've become known as Guy Under Rubber. When you're acting with uh, with a mask on stage, um, and when you're doing sort of things that might fall under the category of physical theater mm-hmm. on stage, mm-hmm. um, you often have a level of abstraction mm-hmm. that doesn't play on a movie screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder how difficult it is to have to have the kind of realistic specificity that's required to interact with you know realistic characters without a layer of abstraction mm-hmm. um when you are also encased in something that is huge i mean mm-hmm. not just physically huge but also kind of in terms of presence and yeah. ridiculousness yeah 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 i uh, uh i think Approaching it as any actor would, uh, the makeup or the or the costume that that makes you otherworldly looking, is uh, that's an afterthought really for me. The main thing is that I have to find the heart and soul of the character, like any other actor on set does, and interact with them as two characters relating to each other with great dialogue, great moments, um, intentions, fears, wants. Everybody comes to the set with those. Um, my character needs to also. Uh, so that's, that's where I start, and that's that. I think that's where any sense of realism might come from, is that I don't approach it as, I'm a big costume coming at you. I, it's more of, a, well, I'm a character you have to interact with, so let's, let's, let's make that as real as we can. And then, oh, by the way, I look like a freak of nature. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've worked a lot with Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. There's something about the monsters that he creates. I mean, your work has often been compared to... Uh, the work of actors from what you might call classic monster movies, monster movies of the um, silent and just post-silent eras. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in large part because that was the last time that monsters were the protagonists of films Mm -hmm. rather than just the antagonists. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And Guillermo del Toro's films often the... Uh, monsters have as much or more pathos as any human character in the film. I think his, his, uh, his Hellboy movies especially uh, explore that, uh, that monster as a leading man with Ron Perlman playing Hellboy uh, and the, the teenage angst that he goes through of wanting to fit in and being born into this world that he doesn't feel he belongs in and, and even with the, those natural devil horns that he would have, and he shaves them down so that he wants to, so he can look more guy-like, more human-like. And I think we've all felt that at some point in our lives, where, uh, where I'm the monster in the room, nobody gets me. Uh, I'm the freak of nature that that doesn't fit in here. And I, I'm, like I said, that growing up a tall, skinny boy, I fully felt like that monster that would walk into a room and be like, "What is that creature that just crawled in here? Ah, run, make fun of him!" Ah. So, uh, so when I read the first Hellboy script, I was like, oh, I so get it. Yeah. So, I, 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 like I said, I, I owe him a lot for that. I want to ask you about one last thing. One of the most interesting articles that I read about you in a sea of 
articles in sort of fanboy publications that <laughs> were just lists of questions about, you know, can you reveal plot points from the Silver Surfer movie <laughs> or what, whatever, right. um, was an article from a Christian magazine about oh. um, the relationship between your faith and your work. Wow, yeah. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, I think that people think of Hollywood and Christianity as being sort of two forces that are diametrically right. opposed. opposed. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I wonder, especially as someone who has made a career working in the world of geek film, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> you right, know, working right. in the world of fantasy and sci-fi <laughs> and this, this whole world, um, what the relationship is right. between your faith and your work. Oh, that, well, this, this, this could be an hour into itself, but, <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, no, I do come from a very, uh, very strict conservative you know, Christian household and, you know, my first concern with getting a script like the first Hellboy movie, the star of the film is a demon from hell. <laughs> how is my mom going to take this, right? I, how, do I, how do I look her in the face and go, Mom, I want you to see this movie I'm in? <laughs> and we should say, I mean, you don't just come from a conservative household. You're also a believer, right? I, absolutely, yes. Yeah. I, 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 I maintain those beliefs to this day. And um, so, so, yeah, so that... that, that oftentimes I do read a script with a certain, you know, okay, can I, can I play this role? How is this going to come off? And what I find is that characters and and storylines are a lot more palatable than I ever thought. Um, You know, my mother used to be like, if she heard like, ah, coming from the TV, she was like, what are you watching in there? (laughs) Right. It's, it's got, it's bad. It's a cult. Turn it off. Uh, So, uh, so that with that fear in my, in the back of my head, um, I find the monsters and demons and fantasies and and uh, and things uh, uh, stories that that take us into like fantasy escape um, really can help us deal with real life issues in, in a great way. And why wouldn't I want to be a part of that? Well, Doug, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Well, thank you for having me on Bullseye. This has been great. Doug Jones uh, is a veteran actor. You can see him in innumerable films. His new book is called Mime Very Own Book. It features him in full mime regalia plus Converse All-Stars in a series of ridiculous pop culture parodies. You can find that on the Amazon.com. I've heard about this website. (laughs) People do some shopping there. I recently purchased some grape nuts from that website. You didn't? The cereal? Yeah, well, they don't sell it at uh, the grocery store I go to. You bought grape nuts from Amazon.com. I was a six-month-old baby. I didn't want to make a whole trip to the regular grocery store just to buy grape nuts, but that's my preferred brand of cereal. That is hilarious. Well, anyway, but you can also buy books and movies there. Which uh, really? Yes, yes. I thought it was just for breakfast cereal. Not cereals. just for food. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's only for breakfast cereal. Every week, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So the story is that when the singer went into the studio, the producer wouldn't cut the record. He basically laughed in the singer's face because the lyric sheet that he got pretty much just had three words on it. What the producer wasn't counting on, though, was that the singer was Sam Cooke and the words were You Send Me. Darling, you send me I know you Darling, you send me Honest you do, honest you do, honest you do Whoa. There isn't a voice in the history 
of popular music that's sweeter than Sam Cooke's. Not one voice that's more romantic. The thing that's special, though, is that there's something more, too. The reason they say Cook invented soul music is because that effortless sweetness and that smoothness and that easiness isn't just easy and sweet and effortless. It aches and torques, too. Like love when you're 16 years old and that's all that matters in the whole world. Or like love and sex and God all mixed up into one confusing, intense thing. Without cracking or even bending a note. Sam Cooke makes you feel all of that. And so it doesn't matter that You Send Me is pretty much just Sam Cooke singing the same three words over and over. Because it's perfect. Just perfect. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White, our editor. Our intern is Joe Molinelli. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.